would like to encourage you to open your Bibles um, to Hebrews chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. And as you do that, um, I want to think with you a little bit about legendary, sort of mythical figures. Now, if there are some of you who already are in uh, back in school, high school probably, or, or even junior high school. You learn about um, mythology, right? You hear about these old mythical, mythical characters, Zeus and Apollo. And this idea of mythical characters is sort of not that, that this is um, maybe a real person, but what, what is told about them is, is bigger than real life. You know, it's sort of a bigger story than what maybe really happened or, or what, we, what we know um, went on. And we have, yeah, we have like Zeus, Apollo, and Hermes, and Mercury, and Greek and Roman gods, and all that other stuff from um, old times. But we also have modern mythical figures. Even in the last couple centuries, we've had um, like, uh, uh, what is it, Johnny Appleseed, a little bit of a mythical figure. But even more so, like in our culture now, we have even modern mythical figures. A good example of that is Chuck Norris, right? I mean, you've heard the stories and the legends about Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris can't do more than three push-ups because if he does four, he pushes the earth off of his axis, you know, that type of thing. And then we also, in media, right, there's media mythical figures. One that's sort of uh, cropped up in the last couple of years is the most interesting man in the world, right? You've seen the commercials for the most interesting man in the world, and he has all these things that he does. What's interesting about the most uh, interesting man in the world is he's actually been launched into space, I don't know if you knew this, but in one of the last commercials, they launched him into space, and now they're trying to determine what's going to happen next with the most interesting man in the world. So stay tuned for that if you're really excited about, I guess, Dosa Keys beer, you know, whatever, whatever they're advertising. But one of my favorite modern sort of mythical legendary characters is from one of my favorite TV shows. And I've talked about this TV show before here. It's called Top Gear. Top Gear, anyone know what Top Gear is? Top Gear is this show about cars, right? And these, there's usually three guys. There's a British version and there's an American version. I actually like them both for different reasons, but the legendary mythical uh, character shows up in both shows. What this, what this show is about is it can be about really amazing, awesome, very expensive, exotic cars. So they have sometimes Ferraris on there and Lamborghinis and McLarens and Porsches and these amazing cars that cost way too much money but go incredibly fast and have awesome handling. But then they also have a part of the show where they do like ridiculous, silly things with cars like they'll all buy three cheap used cars and then see how far they can take these used cars like into the Alaskan tundra and see which one breaks down first, you know, just silly stuff like that. And they do, they do this, this stuff. Um, it's really entertaining. I just really enjoy it. But then they have this other character. There's the three main characters in the show. Then they have this other character who shows up, um, usually at least once a show. Does anybody know the name of that character? Anyone? What is it, Trevor? The Stig. His name is The Stig, S-T-I-G. And you don't know almost anything about The Stig in the show. And this is, this is a show about real life cars. And these are people who are driving these cars. Except The Stig, we don't know who he is. Because he shows up in a white racing suit every episode. With white gloves on, completely covered, white boots on. 
and a helmet with a mirror lens on it, you, you don't know who the Stig is. He's obviously a professional race car driver. I mean, this is a guy who can drive cars at speeds and in cornering in ways that none of us can even imagine. And he is the guy that they bring in to test all the high-end, high-level cars to see just how fast they can go around a track. And then he takes each of those cars, they take a time, and they can see comparing like a Ferrari to a Lamborghini, which one's faster, which one's better. And they do that with all these different cars. And every time it's the same person driving it, it's the Stig. And the way they talk about the Stig on the show is with awe and wonder. I mean, this guy is amazing. He's obviously to them someone that they hold in high esteem and high regard because he's got a unique place. He's this mythical figure that shows up in a very small spot, but obviously to them has great impact in what it is that he does. In our text this morning, we have such a figure. We have this very unique person in the, the, the family tree of God. We have this incredibly unique, almost legendary figure. And his name is Melchizedek. You heard of Melchizedek before, anybody? I'm sure you have. He doesn't show up very much. In fact, in all the texts of Scripture, the hundreds, thousands of pages that we have of Scripture, he shows up really only in three spots. He shows up in Genesis 14, where we hear his story of him and Abraham. We'll get to that in a moment. He shows up very quickly in Psalm 110, just for a quick bit, where we find out a little bit more about the type of priest that Melchizedek is. And then we get him showing up here in Hebrews, right at the end of chapter 6, in the beginning of verse 7. We have Melchizedek showing up, and yet he has great power, even in his little bitty story. He has great power because he... It changes the picture of how we see Christ. And by impact, or by implication this morning, he changes how we see giving. And what it is that we give, why it is that we give it, what our focus is when we give it. Let's turn to the text, beginning at Hebrews 7, verse 1. Actually, we'll skip back real quick one verse at the uh, end of chapter 6, verse 20, where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become, this is Jesus, a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. There he is. Then verse 1. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings, and he blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, Melchizedek, his name means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem, the town where he was king, means king of peace. And then we get this really interesting verse. Just look at it. It says, without father or mother... Without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now, I don't know about you, but I read that verse and I go, what? 
Like, what, what's going on here? I mean, this is, this is a real guy, right? I mean, is that what we're talking about in Genesis 14, that Melchizedek was this real king? Salem was a real place. Abraham did a real battle. He came back and met this real king and gave him a real tithe. Is that what we're talking about? Because this verse here, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the son of God, he remains a priest forever. That verse makes me go, huh? How can that be a real person? I mean, that sounds like at very least, Something is incredibly unique and distinctive about this Melchizedek. I mean, no one else has that sort of description in all the text. No one else has this distinction. Melchizedek is the first priest of God, and his line is unique. Now, really quickly, all right, we, we got to walk through Sorry, this is going to be heavy on the teaching on the front end. It's going to take a little bit to walk through this. Just be patient, Okay. Where are we reading about the story of Melchizedek? I already said it's in Genesis chapter 14, right? Where do we find out about priestly lines? Does anybody know what book that is? Leviticus, right? In fact, the priests are called what? They're called Levites. Okay, so we read about the Levites in Leviticus. Uh, How that works, you know, it sort of makes sense, right? Is Leviticus the book after Genesis or before it? It's after So what you're telling me then is that we find out about how priests are supposed to act, how they're supposed to sort of live and what they're supposed to do after Melchizedek the priest shows up. Obviously there's something unique. In fact, Aaron, the first priest of the Levitical line, he gets that distinction. He is, he is called, the, we, we actually call that the Aaronic Aaron, Aaronic line. But with Melchizedek, we have something unique. He's not in the order of the Levites. He's unique in this whole picture of God's family. And Christ's priesthood, as we heard in verse 20 of chapter 6, just before our text this morning, is connected to his line and not the Levitical line. Now you're going to all ask this question, why does that matter? It's important. Let's understand together why it's important. Let's keep reading in verse 4. Just think how great he was. That's Melchizedek again. Even the patriarch, Abraham, gave him a tenth of his plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi, who became priests, to collect a tenth from the people that is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. So we hear about how giving is supposed to go with the Levitical line, right? What is it that governs giving in the Levitical line? Well, it's, it's the law, right? You were told in the book of Leviticus, you can go back and look at it, what the tithe was, what the offerings were, what the sacrifices that you were to offer unto God at his temple and in giving to the priests. But there was a reason for that. Remember that in the Old Testament, there's one group of people, when the people of Israel enter into the promised land, there's one group of people who don't get a chunk of promised land. Which group is that? It's the Levites, right? It's the priests. Because the priests have the job of being priests. 
Makes sense, right? They're, they have to intercede on behalf of the people. That was his job of the priest. So you get this group of people. The, the kingdom is divided up into 11 parts. And in those 11 parts, the Benjaminites and the, the Judah, all the, the people of Judah, all those people are doing what? They're, they're raising livestock. They're growing crops. They're doing business. They're able to sustain themselves, make money, create food for themselves, do the things that can keep them going and so that they can take care of life and the means of life, right? But the Levites are doing priestly things and frankly, um, you know, that's not a moneymaker. So how do you care for that and how do you maintain the priesthood? You maintain the priesthood with the system. The system of supporting the Levites through the tithe. Giving tithes in the Old Testament was directed and the Levites survived through the tithe and it was part of the system and without it, the priesthood could not be supported. Now, please hear me here. I know that the tithe was not simply about supporting the system. There was something to be said about learning what it meant to bring a sheep that would take upon it your sin and that sin would be sacrificed unto God and that sin would go away and be, be burned away. That there was something to be said for the faith exercise of bringing grain and oil and other spices. That Certainly there were teaching there that was valuable. But each of those things were also part significantly of supporting the priesthood. Now, let me, I want to help you think about this. Think about you're an Old Testament Jew. And it's later on in the history of Israel. The temple has been built and you go to Jerusalem for the purpose of celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, okay? You're going to this city, Feast of Tabernacles, you got to bring a tent with you, live in your tent, you got to do certain things at certain times because it was one of the festivals that you were supposed to do. Part of the festival was to what? Bring an offering and a tithe to the temple, well, everyone is coming in for the Feast of Tabernacles. There's literally thousands of Jews from all over Israel and other places who are making pilgrimage to Israel. And so what would happen, do you think, at the temple? Would it be a very easy flowing thing and everything would get done very quickly? Of course not. Thousands of people would be coming at a time to sacrifice their sheep. Thousands of people would be coming at a time to, uh, to give of their offerings. Now, I want you to imagine what that line was like. Think about how you deal with lines. How do you deal with stater brothers? How do you deal with that evil place called Disneyland? How do you deal with that? How do you do? Oh, the worst of all, the DMV, right? Think about how godly you are when you wait in the DMV. How many of you feel that that is a time of worship and praise to God? All right, I don't. I don't. I think, frankly, lots of thoughts that are not necessarily praiseworthy. I'm. Can't we get this done? Now imagine you're one of those people of Israel. Standing in line with your sheep. How do you think you come to the offering? How do you think you come to the tithe? You come, maybe, I, I don't think you probably come a lot of time with a heart of gratitude. Come, come with the sheep on its, whatever it is, the rope, and you like, I can't wait to be done with this. Let's just get this done here. 
sick of waiting. You can imagine that there were people who did fulfill the tithe and the offering regularly, who did so out of an, not only a sense of obligation, but even with a sense of frustration, and certainly not with a sense of thanksgiving. That's the Levitical line. That's the Levitical tithe. That's the priesthood in the Levites' way of doing things, or the, the way that we're directed to. Then we have this other guy, Melchizedek, and things are different. Let's keep reading at verse 6. Verse 6 says this, This man, Melchizedek, however, did not trace his descent from Levi. Excuse me. Yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, really quickly... Turn in your Bibles, keep your finger there. Go back to Genesis chapter 14. First book of the Bible, very beginning. All right? Go near the end of chapter 14 of Genesis, and we're going to read this. So it's beginning in verse 17 of chapter 14. It says this. Really quickly, background to the story Lot, who is Abraham's nephew, he's a family member, gets captured by some kings, gets all of his uh, stuff taken, people taken, family taken, and Abraham finds out about it, and he's got to fix that. So he goes to this, this place where Lot is imprisoned or taken as a slave, and tries to get him free. And we hear in verse 17, after Abram returned from defeating that guy, and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, gives him this blessing, blessed be Abram by God Most High creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And what happens immediately after the blessing? And Abraham, Abram gave him a tenth of everything. See, what we hear in the tithe of Abram to Melchizedek is we hear not about a system, but about a heart. We hear that this was not about an obligation or a necessary task that had to be fulfilled, but we hear about God coming and blessing Abram with his battle to free Lot, which he did, and Abram showing up, meeting Melchizedek, Melchizedek saying to him, you have been blessed and you have blessed God, and out of those words, Abram says, you know what? I got to give back. You know what? God has been good. God has taken care of me. God has watched over me. God has given me so many good things. God has given me victory where there was loss. He has given me freedom where there was imprisonment for Lot. He has given me all these good things. He has given me victory where there could have been loss. And now I want to give back unto him. 
Melchizedek wasn't in the system. He was unique. And after his victories in battle, Abraham brought him the tithe because God had blessed him. He was grateful. But he also didn't want to hold back on any of his gifts. Keep reading there in verse 21 through 23 of Genesis 14. You hear more about Abram didn't even want to hold back. He said, no, take more. Take more than what you're asking for because it's not mine. It's the Lord's. It's God's. He's given it to me. And because he has been so good to me, I don't want to hold back from him. I don't want it to ever be said that I have held back. Melchizedek is a priest that calls for a tithe out of gratitude. Now, how do we give? What happens? What's, what's the exercise? What's, what's the, the series of events that goes on when Pastor Will uh, comes up here or Mark Leonard or another person comes up here and tells you about the offering of the day? It's, is it something like this? Got to get this done? Okay, what do I got in here? Okay. Maybe you've done some planning beforehand. Maybe you've written a check before you came. But what is, what is going on in here? And what is going on in here in those moments? Is it, okay, time in the service. Here it comes. Get it in the bag, right bag. Okay, good. Or is it, I was lost, now I'm found. I have a spouse who loves me. I have kids who I have a relationship with and love me. I have parents who I have a relationship with and love me. I have health that is good. I have so many things that sometimes I got to figure out where to store it all. Do you know that in this room, all of you are in the top 3% in the world for material possessions, all of you, without exception. And you may think, I'm poor, guess what? We could, sh- we could take you to places where you're not. You are incredibly rich. You will go home today and you will try to figure out if you have what you're gonna have for lunch based on the amount of food that is in your pantry and you will have more than one choice about what you eat. You're going to go out in that parking lot, many of you, and you're going to climb into cars that work that cost more to purchase than there are, there are many people in this world would not be able to purchase them with three to five years of income. Many of them could never purchase them with the income of a lifetime. You live in relationship with people who care about you. I can't name all of you. I, I know I can't, but I can name many of you. And, and I pray for you and I love you. And there are other people in this room who pray for you and they love you. And you have been given the gift of God's people. And you have been given the gift of grace. Grace that redeems you from a life of death and hopelessness. Grace that redeems you from a life without purpose and without hope. Your future is not a future that is death and full of darkness. Your future is a future of life. So when the time comes and a deacon stands up here and they say it is the time in the service when we give of our tithes and offerings, are we moved in those moments, in that split second, to look onto all of those things that we have been given? 
All of those blessings that we know, all the people that we have experienced joy and love and life and grace with, and, and the relationship that we have with the creator of the universe who works in us and gives us purpose and gives us gifts to use each day. Do we look at those things and say, I don't have enough money in my wallet to give. I don't have enough in my bank account to give back to you, O Lord. I don't, there's not enough money in the world to give back to you what is owed. Because when we name them, and we look at the blessings that we have and that we know, there's not a single person on this planet who could ever, ever even come close to outgiving what God has given to us, even his own son, Jesus Christ, his son, one and only son. And he said, on our, for our sake, he said, here is yours. You need them. Without them, you're lost. Here. When we think about that in that time when the deacon is standing up here, then our offering is one of gratitude. It's not in the obligation. Frankly, folks, if it's in the obligation mode, then please keep your money. Keep your wallet in your pocket. I would rather as a pastor for you to step into the place of gratitude than you to just do it out of obligation. I know there are people out there who are going to say, well, you fake it until you make it. You, you keep doing it out of, you know, the sort of the rote activity. And yes, that, sure, okay. But God is calling us to give our sacrifice to him of gratitude. That's not, it's not about obligation. That's not what grace is. Grace is not an obligation. Grace is about gratitude. You and I have received it, and now we look at what we have been given, and we say, thank you, Lord. Here, may I give everything I have to you. That's what we've been asked to do, right? Remember, we've talked about it before. Greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with what? All. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind. He has asked that of us. Are we willing to give it out of gratitude for what he's given unto us? Now, there's more in the text through verse 10. Real quick, we're going to jump over that. That's a little complex. I'm not going to go into that complexity this morning. And then we'll jump to verse 17. Verse 7 says this, And without doubt, the lesser person, that was Abraham, is blessed by the greater, that's Melchizedek. In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who died. Those are the Levites. But in the other case, by him who's declared to be living, that's Melchizedek again. See, there's some complexity here I don't necessarily want to jump into. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham. Because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. I hope you can see some complexity that I don't, I don't want us to get distracted. I do want to jump to verse 17. Because it says, therefore, it is declared... This is of Christ. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The whole purpose of my teaching this morning is for you and I to think about our tithe differently. 
In the Levitical priestly line, it is about this obligation. It is about this system that it supports. But under Christ's reign as high priest, he's called that. He's in a different line. He's in a line of Melchizedek who receives the offering of Abraham in gratitude. And the focus of the offering is on who God is and who God has been. So for us to think about what our motivation is and what our focus is, we are motivated by the gratitude of what we have received. And our focus is not on a system but on a person, the person of Jesus Christ. What Christ has given to us, what Christ has offered to you, if you and I but receive it, the grace and the love, the purpose, the hope, and the life that we have received. And if we think about that, if the time of the offering comes, we think about that, and we take out our five cents, a penny, And out of gratitude, give it to God. That is a much better exercise than a $10,000 check given out of obligation. For us to be moved to gratitude, I want you to think as we close this morning's message, I want you to think about some of the differences even that we are in today. In the Old Testament, if you wanted to give of a tithe and an offering, it was a couple hours, if not a couple days worth of activity. You would have to go stand in line in Jerusalem, bring your offering, bring your tithe. The priests would receive it. All that stuff would take time and energy. Here's what we do. I asked Beth this morning how long our offertory is. It's five minutes long, right? Five minutes for you to give of your tithe, to sacrifice unto the Lord. Now, It's not about convenience, although that certainly is a good thing. I'm sure that many of you would not want to be bringing sheep to church in the morning, all right? But then the question becomes, what is that five minutes about? Where are we? What's going on in our heart? What's happening as the bags come around? What's, what's at work when we're at home in front of our computers and doing our bill pay or doing whatever it is that we do in order to give online? What happens when, when there is a, a request given out and we have an opportunity to give? Do we give out of, well, I guess I should or I have to? Don't get me wrong. There's, there can be good stuff there, but that's not the best stuff. And I want to move towards the best stuff of what the kingdom of God is about. So I want to move to giving out of gratitude. Now, I, I'm not sure about this. I'm, I'm, I, it's okay, but we're actually going to do our offering after the ser- sermon this morning. You notice that? And, and this is not about manipulation. It really isn't. I, if we have less money that comes in this morning, I'm not only good with that, but if, if, it, if it comes in the right place, then awesome. Because the right place is this. I want you to look at your heart. I want you to spend a moment maybe in prayer and listening to God. Maybe your time as the offering goes around is for you to just sit and start to name the things that God has given to you and done in you and worked out in your life even this week or maybe even this morning. I want you to begin to name them. Maybe even take a piece of paper and write them down. See how long the list is. 
See what Christ has done. And then maybe, maybe what you do is you're giving out of a little bit of gratitude. And as you do, and as that place comes by, maybe it's a whisper, maybe it's a thought in your head, maybe even it's out loud, it's, thank you, Jesus. Praise you, Jesus, for giving to me. Now I simply give back to you what is already yours. We're going to take our offering now. The first offering is for an offering uh, that basically uh, is about um, what we do here at the river. And it's about the story. See, I don't want to. I don't want to tell you. I don't. I, 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 as, I mean, how do I put this? There are numbers that we know at this church about our budget. We know what our budget is. We know where we are in relation to it, behind and front, all that other sort of stuff. I don't want to come and sit here and tell you that we're where we are in our budget and for you to respond in giving based on where we are in our budget, all right? I don't want to do that. What I want to do is this. I want to tell you about, there's, there's a bunch of people, some of them just left this side of the room. There's a whole bunch of Christian school teachers that go to this church. And these Christian school teachers are people who go into Christian school every day for the purpose of showing a group of kids who Christ is and who, who, what his story is in their life, whether it's in math or English or history or science. And they are motivated to that by, by what God has done for them. And they are a part of the work here and a part of the leadership and they are active in what it is that we do here. But they're not the only ones because there's also few more than a couple public school teachers in here who go into their work in public school for the purpose of being light and salt and hope there. And they are a person who comes bringing, bringing who Jesus is to them into the classroom. I want us to be motivated to give, to support those sorts of things and developing those sorts of people. I want to. I want to look at the salesman out there, Chris Gilbert, who goes around selling his 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 uh, optom- optometrist stuff, all that stuff that he sells. But as he does, he carries Jesus with him, and people are impacted by that. By that, and we bless Chris in what it is that we do. And I see Letitia over there, whose whose husband Jason, as well as other firefighters, are out there fighting fires, and they do that out of a motivation to serve Christ with the gifts that he has given them. The River Life Fund is about that. It's about those stories among us that we're involved in, that we disciple, that we encourage, that we support, that we as a church get to participate in. That's why we give. Not because of where we are in the numbers, because that's a load of hooey in my mind. I'm not an accountant. I know some of you accountants out there are biting your tongue because you're ready to come up here and give me what for. That's okay. I want to be motivated out of gratitude. I want to hear those stories. That's, that's what that first bag is for. The first bag is about the story and what God is doing. The second bag is about another story. A story that God is telling in Fontana through a guy named Harold Caicedo. Harold Caicedo is a great pastor. He is a dear friend. He is somebody who I respect enormously. He is the pastor of El Sembrador, which is the sower in Spanish. 
It's in English. They also do some translation, or uh, Spanish. They also do some translation into English, and they are growing. He is doing great ministry in Fontana and seeing a community transformed. That's the story that you're giving to. Giving to the story of this people, that's first bag. And the story of those people in Fontana that we are a part of by supporting them. That's our offering this morning. As we go to God and give back to him what is already his, let's pray. God, we are so grateful. I hope we are. I hope you grow that gratitude even in me. That as I give back to you what is already yours, when I reach into my pocket and my bank account and what you have given to me, that I give back to you because, Lord, you have been so good. There's so much that without you I've lost, but with you I've gained. Father, may that move me. May that move us. To give you praise. To give you praise with our giving. To give you praise with our hearts. To give back to you what is already yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.